0: So I got back there and Ginger said, where's John today? Did anybody spot John? Anybody find Waldo today? There he is back there on the drums. He even has a hat. He was going incognito today. He was like, sorry, now I just gave it away. I just realized you said you were going incognito today. I just put it on the internet and everything. So bummer. Hey bummer. That's right. Um, that's right. He's wearing shoes. That's why you didn't recognize him, Larry. That's exactly was the problem. Okay. Um okay, I want to I want to comment on some stuff here at the beginning of this of today's sermon for a few different reasons. Um I want to make sure that you hear and know that um that that neither I nor South Spring has any party loyalty um or, in, or or any man-made systems or anything like that. That's that's not part of it. I neither represent nor endorse any candidates and neither does South Spring. Like that's That's an important thing for churches. That's an important stance. I I agree with that stance for churches and for pastors. Um, That being said, I want you to hear uh, uh, something that has become realized to me and how our church, I think, is engaging with some of these questions. For several hundred years in the West, the dominant worldview, a worldview means literally how you view the world, how you see things and very often they're like glasses. You don't know that you're seeing it differently than other people do. Um, and so that's, that's what a worldview is, is the way you automatically engage with reality with the world around you, certain beliefs that you have and understandings that you have. Now, the dominant worldview in the West for a long time has been what is called the Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, the Judeo-Christian worldview has many different tenets involved with it, but one of the ones that is very significant is called the imago dei, the image of God. It's a fundamental belief that human beings are created in the image of God and are therefore owned by God. Therefore, the rules surrounding the treatment of other humans comes from the owner, God, from the designer, the creator, the possessor, God himself. That understanding, the image of God, the fact that humans have been created in the image of God, lays the foundation for treating other humans with dignity. Now, I'm not going to make any claim that the Judeo-Christian worldview has always been very well practiced or has always been very well engaged with. In fact, I'm about to publish a series of articles that will come out on my personal website that are going to talk about some of these issues probably up through the new year. And and the truth is that we have not done it well. An example is, is that years ago, literally copies of the Bible had to be altered for slave owners and for slaves because the Bible so clearly so clearly taught against and condemned the kind of slavery that was being practiced in America that you had to edit it before you gave it to slave owners and slaves. Otherwise, they would catch on like, hey, wait a minute, right? We don't want that to happen, so we got to edit it. Again, that's, that's going to be, you, there are links to some of those in, in the articles that I'm writing. So this is important to me. This is a, the Christian worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview has been the dominant one. It's what has allowed for things like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to defend yourself, freedom of religion, is, is because in the Judeo-Christian worldview, because all humans are created in the image of God and therefore demanded that we respect and dignify them, um, that means you could have a totally different view than I do. And not only in that worldview am I required to tolerate that, I'm actually required to love you in that. I, should, I am called to go all over the world. Christians and, and The Judeo-Christian worldview calls us to go all over the world to hunt down people who disagree with us and seek to tell them how much God loves them and how much we love them to sacrifice our very lives to go do that. That is the foundation of the Judeo-Christian worldview. It allows for the tolerance of views that we would find despicable or even hateful. Behaviors that we would find sinful or dark or evil we could still tolerate because of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Again, we haven't always done it well. But that's been the foundation. The, world, the dominant worldview in America is changing now. In fact, it's amazing to me that we are literally studying the book of Daniel while we watch the dominant worldview in America shift. The Judeo-Christian worldview is still here and still very powerful. But it is, I believe, no longer the dominant worldview in America. The fail-safe worldview, the downhill worldview, is now going to be the progressive, naturalist Um, secular worldview. Here's what you're going to discover. I'm going to make a prediction for you. That worldview does not have an ethic for tolerance. It doesn't have a concept for needing to tolerate other views that disagree. In fact, the value of humans in the humanist worldview is only agreement. There is no ethic for tolerating if you disagree with me there's no ethic for you having the right to defend yourself if you disagree with me. There's no ethic for you being allowed to practice whatever you want to practice the way you want to practice it if you disagree with me in the humanist, naturalist, secular, progressive worldview, which is becoming the dominant one. This is, this is such an issue that our young people are facing every single day. Our younger staff <coughs> asked to meet with Chris Sherrod and I for an extended lunch just to go, how do we talk to our friends about these things? This is church staff asking these questions. And I told them at the end of it, one of my concerns is will you guys still in five or 10 more years be standing alongside the gospel? Because the pressures that are coming when you're no longer the dominant worldview are things that you can't, it's hard for us to wrap our brains around. What this means is, and so here's a prediction for you people who you've been friends with for decades, who disagreed with you, who had basic disagreements with you, politically, even morally for decades, but you've been friends with them, that's about to end. They're going to block you, they're going to unfriend you, because their traditional, their tradition worldview, their worldview, has no place for tolerating disagreement. So this is what's going to happen. We're going to see this more and more, I predict. It's amazing to me that we are literally studying Daniel, <clears throat> a, play, a, a, a man who lives his entire life in a world of view that is antithetical to his world view. And yet, how does he do that successfully? That's, that's amazing that we get to study that. We'll talk some more about that over these, uh, as we wrap all this up. Obviously, we have an election coming up. Some of you may have heard about that right? That this is happening sometime, sometime soon. I don't remember exactly when, but the, um, sometime soon is an election. And this is, brings worldview questions to the front. It brings worldview questions up to the surface and where the worldviews disagree to the surface. I suspect as we see this shift in dominant, barring a great awakening, we've already had five of those in the West, barring a great awakening, another one, um, this is what we'll see is that shift. So the question we need to be asking as a church is how do we prepare the next generation of believers to withstand the kind of pressure that they're going to be facing? How do we train them up that when all of their friends are rejecting them because of a viewpoint, when all of their, because they have no, you go, wait a minute, Chris, whoa, whoa, whoa. That that worldview, that kind of progressive secular worldview has always fought for dominance. What are you talking about? I mean, it's always fought for tolerance. What are you talking about? That's a big thing, right? You just got to tolerate us. Right, because they weren't the dominant worldview. When you're not the dominant worldview, you're always fighting for tolerance. But understand, as they become the dominant worldview, they have no ethic for tolerance. It doesn't exist for them. And so so the value of humans is going to be agreement or nothing. This is just the natural consequence of that dominant worldview shifting. So what do we do as a church? I've got a couple of them. One, we are offering yet again our annual... Um, worldview and apologetic seminar for our young people and their families. Now, this is open to all students and their families next weekend. Um, this is, this is, and, and by the way, it's open to uncles and aunts and grandparents, mentors, and teachers. If you're someone who you know, I want to understand this better, you can come be a part of that. You need to register for it. The student ministry is going to be, if all of you register, as I hope you do, they're going to be panicked, and that's a good panic, okay? We want as many people there as we can. Second, you need to hear this. On a normal week, pre-COVID, there was a thing called pre-COVID. Some of you may remember that. It took about 300 people to run our children's ministry, uh, about, about 90 a week um, to run our children's ministry. And then if you're going to do rotation so you don't burn people out, we need about 300 people. Right now, we've got about 50 to 70 people running children's ministry. We're periodically getting questions. Hey, when are we going to expand? When are we going to have more children's ministry options? When are the student ministries going to open? When are adult education and and life groups on Sunday morning going to open? So glad you asked. The answer is, ready? There it is. When we have 150 total people who step up and say, we're going to serve, teach, lead, and work in the children's ministry because it takes about 50 people a week just to do the next step. Until we have 150 people, this is, what we, this is instead of picking a date and then running with whatever we have, which seems foolish, we're going to say, you decide. You, we as a congregation are going to get to vote by stepping into those opportunities to lead and serve. When we hit 150, probably not the next Sunday, but the next one we will expand out. Children's ministry, adult life's ministry on the Sunday mornings, and children's expanded, greatly expanded, more than doubled from where it is now. But that's what it's going to take. So as you're walking around the church, if you're not registered and you want to look it up, these are out. Take your phone, do the QR code, and it'll take you to find out more information about the 150, where we get to 150. (coughs) Or pretty much any staff or leadership board member or something like that, you can ask, and we'll get you in touch with the right people. And there's even a table, I think, out front um, for if you want to sign up this morning for this. This is a this is not like, hey, we need to do childcare. We don't. We don't do that here. Um, please don't even say that around Rebecca or Jared. Uh, they go into some small conniptions and anxiety attacks. Don't use the term childcare or, or or daycare or or babysitting. This is preparing a generation to be leaders in ministry in a culture that is turning against that worldview, the one we want them to hold on to. So we need everyone to step up. And, and it, it actually is ironically, I mean, when you run the numbers, it's darn close to everyone uh, to step up and say, hey, you know what? We're going to be involved in this. We're going to minister here and with the children. We'll, we, don't worry. You, you'll get trained. It's actually the work's mostly done for you. Um, you just got to be prepared to be there in those moments. So that's where we are. We need both of those. And so I've realized as I'm looking at this and as we begin the process of teaching in through Daniel chapter 10... They we're connected to something really well. Um, did I make it clear, by the way, that we're, that, that 150 is what's going to dictate when we do more? OK, good. Just first service, I may not have been clear enough about that. Like, so, so here's the thing. Just know if you come ask, if you're not already registered, that will register you. right then. Like that? Well, that's like, "Hey, Chris, when are we going to do? Hey, good news. You're re- you are now part of the solution. <laughs> so that's where we're going. All right. Um, so we looked last week, Paul made a great point in, in clarifying, often with passages, prophetic passages like this, we don't know what all they say. But that doesn't mean we don't know what they say. We know some of the things they say very clearly. And Paul summarized what was being taught um, last week, in, in the last couple of weeks, in Daniel chapter 9, as God hears you, God has sent me, meaning the messenger who's speaking, and you are greatly loved. And we talked about this week how that matches <coughs> pretty well with our Um, presentation of the Babylon, the the Nebuchadnezzar plaque, that that God reveals mysteries, that God rescues His people, that God humbles the proud. But even maybe more closely, it aligns with the gospel message of the entirety of Scripture, which can be summarized by John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God hears you. Those who call upon his name will be saved. God hears you. He has sent someone, and you are greatly loved. So here we are. The natural tendency for me, um, as Paul also talked about how our natural tendencies turn to ourselves, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, um, is to, when I get to tough passages, is to go to the commentaries, which is great, which is to go to the notes, absolutely. Go to the other prophets in Scripture, even more sound. Well, sometimes I forget to do what Daniel always seems to do first, which is to go to God first. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but I want to pray. And I'm going to pray for a specific prayer in addition, if you'll indulge me. In addition to praying for our nation, in addition to God giving us wisdom as we go through the, the last section of the book of Daniel, which, by the way, is going to be all broken up because Christmas is going to come during the middle of it. And so that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. But that as we engage with this, the other thing I'm going to pray... This is a a personal thing for me, very much so, is I was born in 1972, which for some of you sounds like a whole long time ago and some of you doesn't. That's just funny how that works out. But in 1972, very soon before um, the Supreme Court decided that abortion could be called upon on demand in the United States anywhere, and that has continued to be unpacked into meaning that abortion also without restriction can be called upon and demanded anywhere in the United States. Um, Since then, I know the numbers, (coughs) and I've published about this, but in 2016, for example, when 56 million human beings died around the whole planet, of all forms, all forms of death combined added up to about 56 million, that also in 2016, in addition to those 56 million deaths of all kind, there were 56 million abortions worldwide. It is not the leading cause of death. It outnumbers all other forms of death combined for human beings. It is truly one of the greatest moral evils humanity has ever faced. And so I'm going to actually pray. My prayer has become, and I had no hope for this until recently, I'm going to actually pray that as a nation, God would rescue us. And, and I, don't, I, mean, I don't have the faith to pray that it would be ended forever, but that at least at the national level, my prayer is that we would come to a place of saying, people that, there is, that we protect and recognize at least some level of the protection of human life. At that, This is just God's design or His love for human life from conception through eternity. Um, and so, I'm going to actually pray that specifically, and you may hear me pray that periodically as well. Father, as we look to Your Word, we come to You. Okay, maybe not first, um, although that we do wish and do ask that you would guide us to come to you first. But Lord, also that you would guide us, that you would teach us, that you would show us what your word means and what we're supposed to take from it and how it's supposed to apply to our lives. I thank you for the power of your word. I also pray, Lord, that you would guide us um, as a nation as we have this uh, election coming up and we're a greatly divided nation in, a, in not just politically, not just on certain items, but at a worldview, at a metaphysical level, we are now in disagreement as a nation. And Lord, I pray that you would guide us somehow towards an awakening and some type of unification, if that's your will. Lord, I do pray um, that you would teach us as a nation to love life again, that we would love life at every stage and learn to love the great gift of life that you've given us, most importantly, the eternal life that is offered as a free gift by your Son. Lord, I pray um, also that this um, scourge of abortion would be ended again and I know everyone so many in here have been affected by it either directly having had one uh, an abortion or more and or people who are connected to that in one way or another and I pray your comfort and your love and your blessing be poured out on them that your healing would be poured out on them in amazing miraculous ways Lord as a nation I pray that we would come to the place of, of recognizing and submitting to your love of us From all of us from conception all the way through to eternity. So, what I pray that, that that would be something, that this would be something that you would, through your sovereign power, bring us to a new place as a nation. God, I pray that we would be a light on a hill, um, a, a bright light, a dark place, a city on a hill, that we would be salt and light in our community in amazing new ways. And we pray all these things in your Son's magnificent name. Amen. So, as we look at these, here we are in Daniel chapter 10. And we're at a place where, as we're facing um, 10, 11, and 12 kind of being one one story all combined that we're then accidentally, unintentionally going to break up into pieces as we go through Christmas and New Year's. But as we pick these pieces back up, we're starting in chapter 10 (coughs) with this passage that Colson read. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was great conflict. We're going to talk about different ways of understanding that in a second. Um, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So who is this Cyrus, king of Persia? Cyrus II of Persia, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Elder, the king of the achaemenid Empire, the king of Persia, the king of Media, the king of, Lydia, the king of Lydia, the king of Babylon. I don't know about your resume, his is better. It is unreal. This is a guy who accomplished a lot in his lifetime. He was the king of so many different nations well-loved and respected, except and by his enemies, and greatly feared by them. What we know that this third year of Cyrus is about 536 B.C. at about 536 B.C. Daniel must be around 90 years old. Cyrus made a decree around 538 B.C. Uh, his decree, we find it in Ezra chapter 1. Now, this is significant it's kind of fun to consider, <coughs> as Paul pointed to last time, that Daniel is having to do some of the same stuff that we're doing. When we go, wait a minute, does this, when does this 70 start? Does it start with this date or that date? When do these years start counting? When is the, the whatever numbers? And when, <coughs> we're not, it's not only us doing that, Daniel has to do that. So remember, Daniel was uh, exiled with the first exile in 605 or so B.C., There was a second exile a few years later, a third exile a few years later, and the destruction of the temple. And so if you're exiled in 605 B.C., somebody somebody good at math, you're going to spot this. You're exiled in 605 B.C., and it's 538 to 536 B.C. since you've been exiled, and God has said your people are going to be exiled for 70 years, what are you thinking? Carry the one minus... It's 69 years. So Daniel's going, "Um, hey, what does this mean for us? When does all of this change? You said 70. Where are we in this? Do, God, do I start with my exile? Do I start with the destruction of the temple? Do I start with the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar? Do I, where exactly do I start counting these 70 years? And what does that mean about now? <clears throat> and so we get this whole conversation between God and Daniel as God is explaining, well, it's a little more complex than that. As we wrestle through this, of course he's asking these questions. So that's where we are. But here's what happens. Cyrus makes a first decree about 538 B.C., According to Ezra, let's look in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, you probably automatically say, right, sure, that's what the king of Persia did. He said, hey, all this great slave labor that I've got, all this great population that I've got, all these people who I can tax, I'm going to just send them back to Jerusalem and let them move back into their homeland and rebuild their temple. And I'm even going to encourage all the other Persians to give some money to them to help them go do this so that they can go build their temple in their own little foreign country. And this was mocked and scoffed at for many, many years that, of course, Cyrus didn't do any such thing. That's just goofiness. Now, the language is certainly very pro-Jewish, which would indicate that probably this little context, this little thing, though came, coming from the offices of Ezra, may not have been penned by Ezra personally. We've already talked about this, that he might have given a general decree that then different leaders and governors and whatever would have then penned in their own language and for their own purposes But still, can anyone imagine Cyrus doing such a thing? No, you can't. Why would any world leader do such a thing? Then the Cyrus Cylinder was found in 1879. I think we have a picture of the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder, which was discovered, he is named in it, and he is calling for the restoration of temples and the repatriation of exiled people in the first year the Cyrus conquered Babylon. This is unrefuted. Oops. Turns out Cyrus was exactly the kind of guy to send people who had been exiled back home and to encourage them, if not command them, to rebuild their temples and make that a decree. Once again, the hammers lay broken and the anvil still stands. To quote from Billy Graham. God's word still is accurate in regards to this kind of thing. It's exactly the way Ezra said and Daniel said that it was going to happen or that it had happened. So this is where it plays out. Again, I know it's Jewish-centric. Don't let that throw you off. Amazingly, there are still many secular um, scientists, who, uh, secular archaeologists, who still think this, is, this did not apply to the Jews, just other nations. And at that point, I think you're just in denial Uh, That's just a psychological state. They just can't accept that obviously the Bible nailed this, uh, because it obviously did. So we're going to accept that the Bible nailed it. Um, So it's this Nehemiah, we know from Nehemiah at about 445 BC, uh, you know, a little while later, um, went to see the horrible conditions of Jerusalem. So that much time later, 100 years later, the people who did go back, which numbered maybe 50,000 of the hundreds of thousands who were scattered had still not done anything. And this was probably a great disappointment to Daniel, a great disappointment to the other prophets of the time, and certainly to Nehemiah when he shows up and realizes the people didn't want to go home. This is their promised land, but they're kind of comfortable in Babylon now. They're kind of comfortable in Persia. You can see why a message like this would be one of great conflict. You would have fights going on within houses. We need to go back. We need to go back to our homeland. And people going, ah, but, you know, I have a job now. And oh, but I and people wouldn't do it. And the decree from God's prophets to go back to the promised land and rebuild it was largely ignored. And that's going to have extra consequences with it as well. So here we are. The word is revealed. The word is true. It is painful and conflictual, this vision that Daniel's having. It's tough to understand this necessarily in the language. It's a challenge. But unlike in the past, Daniel seems to understand it immediately. And he has a response to understanding it. Daniel experiences this vision, which we'll see in 11. He gets this word, and Daniel has an immediate response to it. He mourns for three weeks. His initial response is to mourning. For, in those days, Daniel, excuse me, he had been mourning for three weeks to build up to this. I'll get to the response to it in a second. "'I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks.'" So here we have the Daniel fast, Right? which he's become famous for. This is his third time we see him do this in the book of Daniel, where he says all the delicacies he's going to set aside. That's what he had been doing up until when this vision arrives. I I spoke too soon. I'm going to show you in a minute what Daniel's response to the vision is. What he had been doing since he had studied Jeremiah and since he had been doing this reading and understanding it, he had realized (coughs) he had been mourning and praying. We saw his beautiful prayer uh, last time. This is important stuff. It's a version of the fast. He doesn't eat nothing for three weeks, just not, he avoids the most joyful food and drink for himself, the wine and the meat and the the good stuff, the stuff he really enjoyed. And so I want to take just a moment and comment on this. I don't want us to fall into the false belief that the joys of the world aren't gifts from God, because they are. The good things in life are gifts from God. Food and drink, even fine food and drink, these are gifts from God. God. And the things that we have in life that bring joy and happiness to us are gifts. But they aren't God. Think about, think about C.S. Lewis talks about in Screwtape Letters, the demon says, is frustrated about this. The demon says, There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Talking about God. Without God minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us, the demon says. God made all these good things, <clears throat> and, and, and the demons have to twist it, have to make it bad in order for it to be bad. Otherwise, it's a good thing from God. You may have been raised in a version of Christianity like I kind of was, like if you're having fun, you're probably sinning, right? If this is fun to you, you need to stop, right? That's probably bad. You're, you're in sin somehow. And so to recognize that's not true at all, the great joys of the wonderful things that God has given us, one another, family, friends, um, outdoors, that, that, that all the beautiful and wonderful things that God has given us, these are things for us to enjoy. But Paul, as Paul mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago, we often look to ourselves if, as long as we think we can solve things. We look to the things that God has given us rather than sometimes to God himself as a habit. Not Daniel. Daniel turns to God instantly, every time. It's it's this incredible, wonderful trait that, that Daniel teaches us. We look to the pleasures, sometimes even the good ones that God gives us, sometimes in place of God Himself. This is the very definition of idolatry, to put something created in the place of the Creator. And we need not do that. We don't do that with church. We don't worship church. We worship the Creator. We don't worship therapy. We worship the Creator. We don't worship books. We don't worship none of it. It doesn't matter what it is. We don't worship that, and we should learn not to turn first to all these good things, but instead first to God and then to His provision. When I need comfort, do I look first to Ginger, or do I look first to God and then to His provision of my awesome wife? That's how it should be. But the natural temptation for me is to turn first to my wife, first to my friends, and that's a mistake. We don't want to make that mistake. Oswald Chambers said, I think we have this one, the key to the Christian life is not found in what I do for God or what I know about God. It's found in the intimacy that I have with Jesus and the qualities as a result of that relationship. That's the one thing God has called me to. And the one thing that will constantly be under attack in my life. So a funny thing just happened right when we, <coughs> right when we were in here worshiping. Um, I reached over and I took Ginger's hand and instantly knew her hand was in the wrong place. So I know, I know we've been married 24 years and I knew her hand was not fitting the way it was supposed to fit in my hand. And I immediately thought like, why is her hand up higher? Oh, she's probably wearing heels. Turn and look, sure enough, she has little heels on. Okay, that's, that's a cool level of intimacy that I know, like, oh, that's wrong. That's, something's wrong about that, right? What would it be like to have that kind of intimacy with God? I'm wondering, as we're studying through Daniel here, is what makes Daniel special nothing more than his intimacy with God? Is that the only thing that makes Daniel... The, the truth is Daniel isn't some superhero who's totally different from the rest of us, <coughs> which is how I want to think of him, because then I don't have to compare myself to him, Right? <laughs> He's some kind of superhuman God follower, unlike the rest of us, but what if the truth is Daniel prays to God three times a day, faithfully, every day, like an intimate friend, and talks to him openly, and goes to him first, and it turns out that's everything that's special about Daniel? What if that's the case? That is an amazing picture that Daniel, I think, gives us. I love the fact that our students right now are actually studying the Christian, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. They're studying things like fasting and and praying and silence and and Bible scripture memory and reading. I love that. I think that's an awesome thing because here's the deal. (laughs) We need to be practicing those things even when we don't need them because the day may come when we need them. If we don't learn how to pray and fast and focus, what do we do when we need to be able to pray and fast and focus? Here's the example that I often use. Um, Paul and, and some of the other guys and I for years, we've taught the concept of bravery. This may not be accurate, but this is how we teach it. That bravery is doing something you fear because you fear it. Whereas courage is doing something you fear because you believe it's right. Which turns bravery into practice courage. Does that make sense? I do something that I fear because I fear it so I can learn how to face my fears so that when I'm morally called upon to face a fear I am able to so I fear large things in the water I don't know why I just I lived in East Texas why I'm afraid of large things in the water it's not like there's a lot of large things in the water around here right and so but I can imagine large things in every body of water I don't know about you if it's dark especially there's there's leviathans down there right so I mean, I go to the Buffalo River and, and drift in the Buffalo River and see a big rock and it gives me a, an anxiety attack to see a big rock. I don't think the rock's coming to get me. It's just big and it's in the water, okay? <clears throat> so one of my life goals is to, is to uh, uh, tank dive with sharks. So I want to go down in a cage and dive with sharks. Why? Because it scares me to death. That's why. I want to face that fear. I want to do that and experience that and face that fear. That's, there's no moral advantage to that. In fact, it may be foolish as it can possibly be, but that's that's what I want to face, that fear. And part of that is so that when I have to face the moment of facing my fears because it's morally right, I know how to. These are the Christian disciplines. When we fast so that we learn to go without, so that we learn to trust God, we learn that we don't need to depend on food but Him. When we get, sit in silence so that we learn to stop depending on our own thoughts and our own words and instead depend on Him. That we memorize his scripture so that our thoughts aren't the first thing that comes to our mind, but his thoughts are. These are the disciplines that we need to be learning. and I'm proud that we're doing that. This is a big deal. And Daniel exemplifies this so beautifully that we could live this out. It was the last time you fasted from something, even good things that God gives by choice. So, here we are. Verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris. Now, this is cool. Going back a little bit, Daniel's been fasting. Again, going back to those disciplines. This is really neat when the Bible gives you a little bit of information like this and you get to unpack it because a good Jewish audience immediately knows what this means. They read that line and they're like, oh, not us, right? So watch this. Okay, so Daniel's been fasting apparently from the third day of Nisan until the 24th day of Nisan, 21 days. Started. He's on the 24th now, 21 days, back to the third when is Nisan? Well, Nissan usually is in the March-April time period for us. The Jewish calendar is lunar. Ours is solar. And so they have a, theirs is a little bit different. It doesn't always match perfectly. From the 15th to the 22nd of Nisan is, of course, anybody? A good Jewish audience, you all know that. I know you know it. You're just scared to say it. It's Passover. That's right. You're like, oh, oh, well, I mean, obviously that, right? You thought I meant something you didn't already know that wasn't obvious. Right, Passover. That's Passover. Notice, 700 years after the first Passover, Daniel is fasting during Passover as he was called to do. He starts a couple weeks early even. He's now fasted a couple of days past because he's waiting for something to happen. He's called upon God to comfort him in the midst of the vision that he's had. He started asking these questions. He's asking for this input. This is the first month of the year for the Jews. 700 years was when it was declared, 700 years before Daniel or so. So on the 22nd it ends, <coughs> he's been fasting just as God had told him to. And then he's gone out to be kind of by himself out in nature. So real quickly, we'll throw this up there. The Tigris River and Euphrates, um, So there we go. There's the Persian Gulf, the modern-day Iran, Kuwait, all of that. Right in here where the two rivers come nearest to each other is where Babylon is, which is where Daniel spent most of his life, right there. But it's actually on the Euphrates. In fact, the Euphrates River runs through the city. You remember that's how the Persians conquered the city of Babylon. It's near the Tigris, but it's not at the Tigris. So what we have apparently is we have Daniel leaving Babylon, to go out in the wilderness after 21 days of this fast with a small entourage. you gotta, you got to give the man some credit. He is a very important official. This is probably after the lion's den incident, um, which I think in, Babylonian, in the Babylonian media was called like Lion's Gate or Daniel Gate or something like that. Maybe, no, not any better. It really was first service, it was, that was a total bomb. Um, I told them I would try it in the second service and they were like, don't, don't even try Anyway, that's what the media did with it. They called it Something Gates. So the, this is, the, he's, he's an important official. So when he goes out in the wilderness, of course, people go with him. He's also 90. So people are going with him out there into the wilderness, <coughs> praying and mourning for 21 days, which, by the way, of course, is three sevens, two important numbers to the Jews of completion. Suddenly, Daniel is alone because everyone runs off. They, suddenly, there's a trembling that sets upon everybody and everybody runs off. And then just as suddenly, he's not alone. Starting in verse 5. So you might close your eyes and try to picture this. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. You can imagine there have been plenty of artist renderings, attempts. But I've got one that I think is kinda cool and kind of helps us connect with what's about to come up next. Now, here's what's weird is it did say his body was like barrel. It says by the way, the fine gold from Ufas, we don't that's been lost to history. No one knows where Ufas was for sure. Um, apparently they made nice gold things there. So that's all we know about it. So his body's like barrel, which is kind of interesting. Barrel is a stone; it's a type of stone. A lot of our stones are what we call precious stones are barrel stones. Um, I use the example of this one because <coughs> it's my wife's favorite. That's aquamarine, and so um, that's an example. So there was something, but but many other stones are barrel stones as well. Why? Uh, his, but his somehow his body looked crystalline, which is kind of cool. That, I feel like that picture didn't do that justice. Um, so this is an impressive figure. 600 years later, the Apostle John is going to run into another figure he describes in language clearly inspired by this. Revelation 1, 12 to 16, "...then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man," Daniel reference, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow." His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. or in in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Again, you get a picture kind of like this. this. has been an, an attempt to... Um, it's really tough to show these pictures because they're so extraordinary. But you've, you probably notice that they look alike. The descriptions are very similar. In fact, there's, a, there's another one that shows kind of the, the things that connect the two of them together um, that are very similar. So you you're probably assume that this is the same person 600 years later, and many do. Um, next week, I will unpack more in detail um, this idea. Um, I actually don't think they're the same person. <clears throat> that probably actually puts me in the minority um, but, but I think there's a reason, and I will get to that next week, why I don't think they're the same person, but they very well may be. I, you, can, you can argue either side of it. In John, it is clearly the person of Jesus Christ. So um, I'll keep reading in Daniel, Daniel 7, and I, Daniel, alone, uh, saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell on them, and they fled to hide So he instead, he does respond to the presence of this new character immediately. Verse 9, Then I heard the sound of his voice, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Flat out face plant. He just falls straight to the ground with his face in the dirt, not protecting himself, and he falls down like he's dead. The others run and hide And the language makes clear that he is like a dead man, which, by the way, is also connected to Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, the Apostle John says. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys to death and Hades. This is clearly Jesus Christ. Um, So that means either Daniel is now interacting with the second person of the Trinity, which is pretty cool, or it means that this messenger sent to Daniel, is dressed in the armor of his Lord, which is also cool. Both are, the, are, are pretty amazing. And again, we'll unpack that next week some. Whereas in Daniel, while in Revelation the person puts his hand on him but doesn't, have him, doesn't require him to stand in that moment, in Daniel he does, Behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. When he'd spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. This is one tiny thing that makes me, this is a small piece of the puzzle, but makes me think that maybe this isn't Jesus himself because when you're with Jesus, it's not required that you stand face first on the dirt is a totally appropriate response to being in the presence of Almighty God. Angels always have people stand in their presence. People tend to fall down and they're like, no, no, please stand, don't do that, right? You need to stand up. And also just the idea that this person was sent by seemingly by a higher authority. That seems like an odd thing for Jesus if it's Jesus to say. does not discount it being Jesus. That's a little bit on, on, on the part of why I think that. Again, we'll unpack more. Regardless, God has heard and God has sent because he greatly loves Daniel. Daniel is greatly loved. And Daniel, 21 days before, began to cry out, and we're going to find out that when Daniel cried out, immediately God heard. And immediately God sent this messenger. But something stopped him. For three weeks, something stopped him. Which is what we're going to start unpacking next week. And it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's going to blow some minds as we look at that. He said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Now, wrapping up, here's, here's what struck me. And this, this just kind of a, almost a strange one. I think one of the main things for us to pick up from this passage is the fact that Daniel's first response is to seek God. But here's what struck me in this. As I began to think about the idea of Jesus Christ appearing to John in this great royal power, in this great divine glory, The thought of one of his messengers showing up wearing essentially the armor of his God, as if to exemplify, to be the ambassador of the Lord. What struck me about that that's really cool is that we also have the role sometimes of being sent. That we sometimes are his messenger. And we're supposed to wear his armor. We're supposed to look like him. We're supposed to bear his fruit. That's just what struck me as interesting, is that, is that God has sent us as well <coughs> into our homes, <coughs> into our relationships with our children and our spouses, into our neighborhoods, into everywhere we go, into the church, and one of our jobs is to be sent. That we see ourselves that way, that we are like messengers. Someone else has called out to God, and God has sent us, and we don't always know it. When we get to have that conversation with somebody, we don't know that they've cried out. And yet we're there. What are we going to do with the time that we have? If your Christian life is not involved with tons of divine appointments that you realize someone set this meeting up, or opportunities for appointments that God says to you, God puts a person in front of you and gives you the opportunity to engage with them and to get to know them. It's amazing how if you will sit with people and listen to them and hear their stories and hear what's going on in their lives, how they want to hear from you as well. It's a powerful thing for us to get to do. Uh, I was struck thinking about this, of people like um, Dan Campbell, who's back there, his parents, who someone was sent to a remote tribe in Brazil to bring God's Word over 30, how many years did they? 50 years they spent there translating God's Word. God loved those people in that little tribe enough to send the Campbells to give, bring them his good news. Who is God loving when he sends us into people's lives as well is a question that needs to be there all the time. A narrative that runs for us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Apparently, they won't. This is a rhetorical question. How will they believe in Him and who they have not heard? They won't. How will they hear unless someone preaches? Preaches here means declared, not just from a pulpit, that's narrow, unless someone declares it. They won't. How are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Notice, we get to have the role of being sent and sending. Where are we in that process? Do you recognize yourself as being sent to your spouse by God to help them heal, to help them grow, to help them learn, to sacrifice utterly like the Campbells did for 50 years for a group of people who God sent them to? Do we see our marriages that way? Do I see our raising our children that way as a lifetime of us sacrificing and being sent to them to engage with them, to come alongside them in the ministry that they represent? Do we see that in our neighborhoods? Were you sent to your neighborhood or did you just happen to move there? Were you sent to this church or just happened to be here? Did, were you sent to this community? Like, how do, how do we see that? And I think that's vitally important. They won't know, they won't believe unless they, they won't call them unless they believe, they won't believe unless they hear, they won't hear unless someone tells them, and no one will tell them unless they're sent. So let's be faithful to be sent and to share what God has done for us as well. All right, stand with me if you will. Let's, Let's pray together and, and ask God to guide us in what that means. How do we invest in the places where he has sent us, to the people that he has sent us to, as he called us to? And part of that's going to be, are we looking to Christ first? So I'm going to pray that over us. When, we're done, when I'm done praying, it'll be the time we call the invitation time, a time for us to respond. If you know you want to join this dysfunctional family and be, be, do church here Um, We'd love to have you. If you've already gone through that process, now's the time to come let us know. But if you've got anything you want to come pray with someone about or if you need to engage with God in a new way, understanding that He hears you and He loves you and He has come to get you. um, And this is the first time you've understand that. We'd love to pray that with you as well.